1,235, as it says on the screen. And it's to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, and I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you for that truth, Jesus. Well, good morning, Muttley family, and thank you, Ricky and worship team, for leading us. If you don't know the story to It Is Well With My Soul, just type it in and just see the amazing story that comes back behind the writing of that soul. My prayer is it'll be well with all our souls by the end of our time together this morning. Okay, your starter question. What have these four got in common? DVD, Life of Pi beautiful Southwold beach huts, blackberry picking, and Ely Cathedral? Answer, they were all part of my August experience. Uh, Jan and I must have traveled about a thousand miles uh, around East Anglia, and uh, uh, we had uh, some time with our grandchildren, some time with other friends. Life of Pi, I've now seen twice, and at 12.30, early on a Saturday morning, I, I now think I get the message. If you've never seen Life of Pi, brilliant. The beach hats at Southwold. If, if you're looking to start a new business up, there's nothing better than to be inspired by what they've done in Southwold. They're bigger than any beach huts I've seen anywhere on the South Devon coast. They could make you a lot of money and then you could bless Muttley in that way. So think about it. Blackberry picking, I confess, is not my favorite pastime. I'm often lured into going for a walk only to discover that it's a blackberry picking walk. And the only thing that gets me picking the blackberries is the promise of blackberry and apple pie. 
and the pie always wins. So uh, Ely Cathedral. Ely Cathedral, I think, is one of the masterpieces of East uh, Anglia in terms of architecture. The ship of the fence. And when you step inside, the giant stone pillars and uh, Gareth Malone for the final of Sing While You Work, which took place last December, he chose Ely Cathedral uh, as the location for that. Well, our friends had never been there, so we arrived eager to show them the wonderful architecture inside the stone pillars. But when we got there, the door was shut and there was no key. More of that later. But on our summer journey uh, through the seven churches of Revelation, um, there they all are. By the way, if you haven't visited the uh, Muttley website, each of these churches uh, has a DVD introduction. It's a wonderful introduction, plus notes. And our house groups throughout the autumn period are going to go back over each of these seven letters and going to look at them in detail. I think that packed away in these seven letters are some powerful messages for Muttley. There's one here this morning, and for us to be able to go back over them and get even more meat off the bone, as it were, would be, would be great. So we've come to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, which is the largest and newest, not the largest, the newest of the seven cities that we're looking at. And uh, this is modern-day Alasahir. Uh, strategic location, uh, a road network that made it a very important uh, center. The secular name, long before this letter was written, the secular name for Philadelphia was Missionary City. That was given to it by Greek overlords who saw it as a way of um, exporting over those hills behind that picture to barbarian land, the Greek civilization, Greek customs, Greek language. They felt that the more Greek culture, language, customs they could get beyond those hills, they would civilize the barbarians and it would make life easier for them. So it wasn't missionary city gospel, but missionary city Greek culture. But you can see where we'll go in a moment with that. The second thing about it was it was an area renowned for earthquakes. Uh, about 50 years before the letter was written, there had been a very powerful earthquake. It had destroyed surrounding cities, and this city nearly disappeared. If you look at Earthquake Watch and just type in that uh, current name, the modern day for Philadelphia, Alasahir, you will find there have been two earthquakes, minor earthquakes, in August and seven this year. And because it was a, a, an area renowned for earthquakes, it prompted people to live less in the city and more in tents. But they had to commute. So they would live in tents in the countryside where it was safer, come back in, perhaps visit their homes and take whatever they wanted to because it might have been an earthquake season or there were rumors, their businesses. So they were constantly on the move. And that language is reflected in the letter. It was a volcanic region, which meant it was very fertile for, for grapes. So there was a burgeoning wine-growing industry. Uh, also, hot springs were there where people, sick people, would come to bathe in the soothing waters. And in this ancient city of Philadelphia, a very tiny group of believers, they weren't large in number. Much larger in number was the Jewish synagogue. And the Jewish synagogue were fiercely opposed to the Christian community for one reason, and that was the Christians believed they were following Jesus, the Nazarene. They believed he was the true Messiah. And of course, Jews, this Jewish uh, congregation in Philadelphia didn't believe that. 
Uh, so fierce is the opposition. They're called the synagogue of Satan. They're also not really Jews because true Jews, according to the visionary writer John, were those who acknowledged Jesus. You are the true Messiah. So here we have this setting for our city church in Philadelphia. And there are three symbols that I want you to focus on because I think they're powerful as a message for Muttley. In verse 7, there is the key. In verse 10, there is the door. And in verse 12, there is the pillar. So let's look first of all at the key of life in verse 7. These are the ones of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. There were many, especially in the Jewish synagogue, who doubted the identity of Jesus Christ as the one who had come from God as Messiah. That's why we're reminded of his true identity in the opening words. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Muttley Baptist this morning, the words that we look at and study and hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church, are from one who is totally reliable. His integrity is impeccable. He is holy and true and has come from God. He came and delivered this message to Philadelphia. And now with our ears open, he is speaking this word to Muttley this morning. Now the key of David is an Old Testament phrase. It goes back to a wonderful picture story in Isaiah chapter 22, where Isaiah 22, 22, we read, that's not me stumbling over the words, it is Isaiah 22, verse 22. You have a picture of two stewards, a good steward and a bad steward. The good steward is called Eliakim. And Eliakim, of him it is said, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one will shut, and what he shuts, no one will open. It's a picture of supreme authority. Eliakim is in complete control. He has absolute authority when it comes to controlling access to the king. He's the one who's able to say, open the door to this person. And equally, he's able to say, deny entry to that person. May the door remain firmly shut. Now, Eliakim, in fact, it says in that passage, he was so important, he was a peg on which everything hung. But he was a human being. Jesus hasn't yet arrived. And what happened is family were not made of the same character and integrity. And they hung on to him in order to gain promotion and get advantage and the story says, so much did they drag him down that the peg broke. But that doesn't mean to say that Eliakim is not a wonderful picture of him who is to come. This is an Old Testament picture of the person of Jesus Christ. God has granted him as the key holder, supreme authority, complete control. No one has access to God except by Jesus Christ. I am the way, said Jesus, the truth and the life. No one, but no one comes to the Father except by me. So, if you want to experience life in its fullness, Jesus is the key. Now, you and I know that there are lots of keys that are jangled every week in front of us to say, you know, here's the key to life. True in Philadelphia, true in Plymouth. In Philadelphia, they would have had the key which jangled, which was Greek culture. Come and study Greek literature, come and look at Greek architecture, look at our customs, and we promise you, your mind will be filled with knowledge and beauty. 
They would have had the key jangling in front of them uh, of getting involved in the wine trade. Buy yourself two or three vineyards and get it organized, and we promise we'll fill your pockets with money. Then there would have been the, the open doors of endless business possibilities. Come and join this guild. Come and join this organization. Burn a little bit of incense to Caesar. Get your certificate. Say, Caesar is Lord. Whisper, Jesus is Lord, and keep your fingers crossed. And there were Christians who wouldn't do that. They wouldn't join because they felt it betrayed their own integrity. In baptism, they had said, Jesus is Lord, and you can only once serve one Lord. The temptation then and now is exactly the same. So nothing wrong with these things. Nothing wrong with culture. Nothing wrong with business. Nothing wrong with networking for better opportunities. But they do not hold the key to life. And there are those, one Sunday we need to have a testimony session which goes on for a few hours. So what we read in the Word can be supported by people who come and stand up here at Mutley and say, that's true. In my experience, that's true. I've tried the wrong key to enter into the fullness of life. It didn't work. And once I trusted Jesus as the key opener, I got involved in all these other things, culture, business, networking, but they alone do not open the key of the door to life. The key to life is a cross-shaped key. Drenched in the blood life of Jesus himself. He died in order that we might enter through this doorway, through the key he provides. Jesus said it's quite plain. There are two destinations. There's the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. Talked about two destinations a place of eternal desolation called hell and a place of endless beauty and peace called heaven. I alone, he said, am the key holder to heaven. In Revelation 5, I don't know whether you've begun to read, you know, beyond uh, chapter 3, which is where we end next Sunday. Chapter 3 is a very powerful vision. John sees the throne room of God where the universe is commanded. And he sees God holding this book, which is full of writings. And chapter 5 says that it's sealed shut with seven seals. And a messenger, he hears the thundering voice of an angel who comes and says, who is worthy to open this book? Who can break the seals? No one in heaven, earth, or under the earth steps forward. There isn't a human being that can step forward and say, I'll open the seals. And John says he weeps uncontrollably. He wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. Now, we're not talking about the Old Testament book, <laughs> and nor are we talking about the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation opens itself, and with the aid of the Spirit, we can understand it. Listen, this is the book, the book which talks about the, the destiny of human history the origins of life, the mysteries of the universe. Where do I fit into all this? It's a sealed book until it's opened by him who has the key. And the elder comes and says to John, don't weep. There is someone who can open this book and unlock all these mysteries. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. The risen, crucified, risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. He holds the key of David. It's that cross-shaped 
key, without which we don't understand life. For the first 17 years of my life, I went where Christians went, I did what Christians do, I attended services, I sang songs, I listened to sermons, I said amen to prayers. I even came and took the bread and wine of the table. There was one thing that was missing in my life, and that was I'd never personalized it. I believe Jesus died. I believe he rose again. I believe he forgave sins. I believe he gave the gift of new life. But there had to come a day when God knocked on the door of my life and said, David, make it personal. And I did. It was a crisis moment. And I had to come and I had to say before the Lord, Lord, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising for me. Thank you for forgiving my sins, which I now confess. Thank you for giving me new life, which by your Holy Spirit's power I now receive. I have to say to you, because you understand preachers do think about what they're going to share. And I felt the Lord saying to me, David, could it be that there's somebody in Muttley Baptist on the 7th of September 2014 who is exactly like you were up until the age of 17? Being here, doing everything that Christians do, believing everything that Christians believe, even taking the bread and wine to the table, but there's never been a moment when you've made it personal. And there's nothing like renewing the faith to make it personal again. Lord Jesus, as I come to this table this morning, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving my many, many sins. Thank you for the free forgiveness that you grant and thank you for your gift of new life. Do it. And you'll be affirming once again that the sole key holder to life itself is Jesus Christ. But there's a second picture here, and uh, that's the door of opportunity in verse 8. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Well, we're back at Ely Cathedral, and when I arrived with my friends, here's the shut door, and was I disappointed until I saw to the side this notice, Welcome to Ely Cathedral. The church is open, so please do come in, turn the handle, and push the small door hard. I couldn't even see the handle, but I did, and I stepped through, and we stepped through into the beauty that is Ely Cathedral. If you've been there, you'll know. If you haven't, do it sometime. I have to confess, after spending an hour there, we came out. I spent five minutes afterwards... Uh, with my newfound authority of how to open the door to Ely Cathedral. People were turning up, didn't have a clue, so I stepped forward as an unofficial guide. I said, let me show you. And I opened the door, and uh, they stepped through. Now, the church had given this city in Philadelphia a mission opportunity. The question is, did they see the door? That's what it says, doesn't it? Do you see the door? See the door. See the open door. Open door imagery is very common in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talks about a wide door for effective ministry has been opened to me, but many oppose me. It had been called a missionary city for Greek culture. Is it any small wonder that God saw the location for this particular church 
as an open door for mission expansion. In the days when this was written, what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace enabled people to use brilliant roadways, a common language. They had the Old Testament in Greek, which would be understood. It was one of those windows of opportunity which missionary cities needed to take, like Philadelphia and like Muttley. Open doors don't exist forever. And we're dealing in this section now with something bigger than I'm aware of. Only prayer will release to the believing members of Muttley Baptist Church what God is saying to us through this particular image. But let me imagine, we've got a church meeting that next Tuesday, that's not imaginary, but let's imagine attending a church meeting in Philadelphia. Somebody's read these letters, six verses of them, that have come to the church in Philadelphia, and whoever's in the chair says to them, well, how do you feel, folk, about this open door? Now, because we know Jesus says they're a good church, they're not going to come back and say, no, not the time for an open door. It's not that kind of church. But neither are they. Where is it? Show us. Let's step through. I think they're an average church. They're a bit like Muttley. They had their reservations, as we often have reservations, when big open doors are offered to us. And I think we have a hint in these verses as to what those reservations were, because God anticipated what those reservations were. Look at verse 8. Their first reservation, they had little strength. And God says, I know. I know you have little strength, which may mean I know you're small in number, which they were. Or it may mean... uh, they were just plain weary from working for Jesus. They couldn't deal with all this persecution. They didn't know how to answer the Jews. But what God is going to come and say to them, I know you have little strength. I know you are small in number. And I know you're weary from working for Jesus. But if I know all that, would I show you the open door? Answer, no. In the knowledge that they had this reservation about numbers, strength and weariness, God still shows them the open door. What do you think about that? And I think he wants to say, he certainly said it to me this week, I work best when people are weak. See, when I've got all the time in the world and I've got no financial worries and everything's fine at home and there's no health issues and and everything with the Lord, I wake up every morning and have three hours of prayer and Bible study and Well, where's that? Where's the sense of weakness? It's when you get up and you don't have the strength to run. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. You know that. Rising up with wings like eagle, running and not be weary, walking and not faint. What happens when you haven't got the wings of an eagle? You've got no strength to run or to walk. You're just about crawling. If in those moments God comes and says, Behold, I set before you an open door. He will have his way of getting us through that open door. That's the principle. Jan and I have been reading uh, the book of Samuel. Um, If you want to start somewhere in the Old Testament, it's brilliant narrative, wonderful storytelling. Early on, you see a picture of weakness. This dear lady called Hannah, who's married, childless, her earnest prayer is, let me have a child. And women here will have sympathy with her. She has a husband who doesn't understand and a pastor who's lost the plot. 
I mean, that is a big burden for a woman to carry. That's what you find in Hannah's story. She goes to church and she's praying silently instead of the pastor being sensitive. He thinks she's drunk. But you know the story of how out of this position of weakness, not even surrounded by wisdom, Samuel's born. And the gift of this child is not only being a blessing to her family, but to the whole nation of Israel. And they put him as a gift, what you could do in those days, in the temple. And the temple was being married, managed by two corrupt pastor's sons. They were immoral and they were dishonest. And you would say to yourself, well, hang on, Lord. First of all, we've got a, a woman who's in need. You give her the gift. Then you've got this fragile gift of a boy, and you put him down into that context of evil. And God says, I specialize in things thought impossible. God specializes in things thought impossible. He manages things the way we wouldn't do them. Philadelphia says we're small in number, we're weak, we're tired from serving you. And God says, she, see the open door. I'm going to take all that on board, but I even talk to you about an open door. I plan to be with you as you step through the door. What's your second reservation church meeting at Philadelphia? Well, verses 9 and 10, we're, we're being persecuted for following Jesus. This is no time to step through an open door. We've got to batten down the hatches. We've got to really make sure that we're firm in our faith. And what does Jesus say? I know how you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've been faithful. And I know it's very hard to take the threats and persecutions that you get at work, in the streets, especially from the synagogue of Satan. But stand by and watch out, verse 9. Because the tables are about to be turned. And what's going to happen with the tables being turned the very people who have caused your life a hardship are going to come and kneel down. Not just ask and say, oh, by the way, can I say I made a mistake? They're going to kneel down and say, do you know you were right all the way along? You are greatly loved by God, and I didn't spot it. So that's that reservation. What about the storm clouds of persecution? I'm going to keep you, says God, from the hour of trial, verse 10. Do you get the message? Reservations must never hold us back from the open door. Speak them out. Say to the Lord this morning, listen, there's more going on in your life than we're aware of. That's always true. True in my experience as a pastor. People come up and say, you don't know this, but you know, over the last three months, over the summer, God's been saying, and this morning, that absolutely sealed it. Happens that way. I don't carry that burden of responsibility. I carry the burden of being a messenger. You are the one who carries the burden. If God has said to you individually, see, I set before you an open door, let him address the reservations. But don't let the reservations hold you back from stepping through. The other thing I thought about was, uh, what does the Lord say to us about open doors at Mutley? Well, they already stand open. One of my pictures was dozens of doors that stand open, but I thought that might overwhelm you, so I just gave you one door. But think of all the open doors we've already opened and stepped through, youth and children, the life that left us about 20 minutes ago, buzzy bees, messy church, recovery, soup run, street pastors, 
You've seen those open doors. You've overcome the reservations you stepped through. Within the next two weeks, 31,000 students will flood into Plymouth. From all over the country, from many parts of the world, they will arrive for the new academic year. What an open door for all the churches of Mutley, of Plymouth. 25-year-old Miriam Swaffield is a, a friend of mine. Our families have been friends since she was a baby. And she works for a Christian organization called Fusion, which seeks to connect students and churches. Uh, it equips local churches, Fusion, to be, in Miriam's words, churches that are phenomenal at loving our universities in the UK. I'm hoping Miriam will share her own vision uh, and come and visit us sometime in Plymouth earlier in the new year. She has stepped through again and again with others, the open door of student work. Club Mission in Loughborough, a weekly nightclub ministry that all began when a student, a woman student, decided to hang around nightclubs in order to help girls who had vomited their stomachs out in nightclub toilets. God gave her that ministry, and out of it has come something very substantial. The Leeds University student, booked to go to Africa. Then God touches her heart with the students of Leeds and their needs, and she realized God's mission was nearer to home than Africa. Portsmouth, group of students who got together and said, with a church, can we be in partnership? Will you be prepared for your church to be open until 3 o'clock in the morning? We want to get out on the streets with bottles of water, praying for people on the streets. They've given their lives to doing that and have seen. They've led people to Christ on the streets of Portsmouth. It's great that David and Alliston and Esther are here this morning. And I'm going to hear over lunch where you saw God's open door and stepped through it. I'm interested that we should go on being a global church. A global church is a local church with a global heart. That's Mutley. And it's possible that God is saying to you this morning, do you see that open door? Bring me your reservations and together we'll address them. But see it and step through it. And here's the, the final thing. It's the, the pillar of security. You've had the key of life. You've had the door of opportunity, and in verse 12, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is a wonderful image for an insecure city. What made Philadelphia so insecure? Number one, earthquakes. To this day, earthquakes that threaten that region of Turkey, moving in and out of the city to stay safe. Civic confusion. The constant changing of name. First it was Philadelphia, then it was Neo-Caesarea, then it was Flavia. Imagine over a period of 60 years that we'd been Plymouth, then Ocean City, then Devonium. And then there was the ever-present threat of persecution. And then there was economic devastation. The Emperor Domitian had come and said, I want 50% of the vineyards closed. We need to increase grain production right across the Roman Empire. Khrushchev did the same in the 1950s and 60s, and the Aral Sea disaster is the result of that. An economic devastation for some families because 50% of vineyards disappeared. You see, in an insecure city, for the reasons given, 
What an amazing promise that God comes and says, I'm going to make you a stable pillar, a named pillar. I'm going to put my name on there, the name of your new citizenship, not just Philadelphia citizen, but citizens of the new Jerusalem. I want you to read sometime chapter 5, and I want you to read chapter 2 of Revelation, because we need the hope buried in our heart that as we see life today, it won't always be like that. Look at God. He's the great town planner, the city planner. What began with perfection in a garden is going to end with perfection in the holy city. It's going to be a renewal, a new creation, new heaven, new earth, new born-again people living, walking on this redeemed earth. Read 22. And God says, and you guys are going to be pillars. All those names are going to be there. If you're a Bible student and want to know what's meant by the, the new name, Read chapter 19, verse 12, and perhaps that might give you some understanding. I think it refers to King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but in depths of meaning and purpose we have yet to understand. I was sharing with somebody who's here this morning, earlier this week, that for all the years I've known the Lord and served Him, I sometimes say to Him, Lord, I don't really feel I know. I love you, but do I know you? Do I fully understand you? And there are times when don't we feel that, Lord, you're like the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, all the oceans of the world in terms of knowing you will never plumb the depths. That pillar with these names is promised. Uh, you can find architectural evidence, search for it, Philadelphia monuments, where citizens. I mean, we do it nowadays, don't we? We, we raise statues where we used to. Go to Parliament Square and you'll see statues raised to great men and women who've served us. Westminster Abbey, Poets' Corner, all this kind of thing. Well, they would do that in Philadelphia. But this little colony of Christians, I mean, who's going to put their name on a pillar? God. That's what he says to them. God's people are never a little people in his eyes. And this pillar which will endure right into the new city, which will be forever. Their names, their pillars inscribed will be there. Do you recall what happened on the 12th of July this year, two months ago? This is the city of Mosul, burning in flames. This is an 1,800-year-old church for 1,800 years. Christian believers had worshipped in this cathedral. ISIS burnt it to the ground in ours. For the first time since the third century, the church bells of Mosul didn't ring out on the holy day. Mosul, the capital city of Nineveh province. <laughs> and Christians were given three, cho three choices. Convert to Islam pay Zizhar, the poll tax for non-Muslims, leave or die. Not since Genghis Khan in 1259 have Christians in this region experienced such severe persecution. The homes of Christians were daubed with this Arabic letter, N. Do you know why N? N for Nazarene. They wanted to identify them as followers of Jesus the Nazarene, Christians, followers of Jesus. 
Those who live in this house are marked people. Imagine that happening in this city. You don't have to imagine it if you lived in Mosul. And around July 12, 2014 this year, over a period of 12, two days, over a thousand believing families fled the city. They made their way to take surf safety in the Kurdish region. Many of them have come to the Lebanon. I found pictures, and I've been sent pictures from local believers, which are too grotesque and horrifying to show in a public worship service. But make no doubt about it, if the believers of that region read these verses this morning, they would read them in a different way to the way we've heard them. So you're in Mosul this morning, and this is what you hear. I know you have little strength, and you've kept my word, and have not denied my name. I'll make those who've been your accusers come down and fall at your feet and acknowledge I've loved you. You've kept my command to endure patiently and I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on, Iraqi Syrian Christians. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To him over overcomes, I will make you pillars in the temple of my God and never again will you leave it. There'll be no in and out of the city, no running away. I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of God, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will write on you my new name. If you hear this, then hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In an act of solidarity, I want you to do something for me. We've talked about the, the key of life. And I really pray as we come to this communion table, if you've never made it personal with Jesus, do it this morning. And we've heard about that door of opportunity. Only we together can discover what God is saying to us about new doors. But what about you personally? Bring your reservations. And talk about them with the Lord. But what about this pillar of security? Uh, this is a little group of prayers that uh, has been prepared by Tear Fund. I don't know whether you can read them from there, but they begin with this verse from 32, Jeremiah 32, verse 7, 17. Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Are those words difficult to read? Father of all mercies, we pray for the families who fled their homes in fear. We lift up the mothers and fathers who've escaped with only their children, leaving everything else behind. Their country has changed. Their lives will never be the same. They're afraid of the future. Say that with me if you can. Lord, you are the God who heals. Please bring your comfort and healing to those who are hurting. We lift up the communities who've taken in refugees and displaced people, even though they may be struggling themselves. We thank you for their generosity and compassion towards those in distress. Lord, you are the God who provides. We pray that timely help and support will reach all who are in need. Father, there's so much pain and conflict across the Middle East. 
We pray for leaders in Iraq, Syria, Gaza, and throughout the region and ask you to turn their hearts towards peace as our leaders and those around the world consider how to respond. Please grant them wisdom and insight. Lord Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. We pray for an end to the violence and bloodshed and ask you to bring a new dawn of peace across the Middle East. Lord, make us your pillars here in Plymouth. With all the freedoms that we have, let us not abuse those freedoms. And we pray for these people that we've named and mentioned and pictured. May your protecting hand be upon brothers and sisters right across the world. And may this day there be people who find in Jesus the key to life, step through doors of mission opportunity, whatever the dilemmas they face, and above all, raise up millions of pillars, secure pillars that will stand firm until Jesus comes again. All this we ask in your strong name. Amen.